Welcome to the Lubber's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Ian. And with Mike. And we are, Mike, finally making our way, inching our way towards the culmination of one of our Patrick O'Brien favorite novels here. We are in the midst of Clarissa Oaks, also known as the True Love. Catch us up, would you please? Where did we get to last time? Where might we be headed this week? Oh, delighted to do so, Ian. We're into chapter nine here. And O'Brien has had such a cadence of 10 chapters, 10 chapters. You know, this is only nine, but it's a big one. It's a big one. So, you know, last week in chapter eight, an angry Jack worked the crew relentlessly to overcome their divisions. Stephen understood Clarissa a bit better and tried to help her understand men's jealousy and, and need for exclusivity. Jack became much more impressed with Mr. Oaks, and after an excellent great gun practice, Jack told the crew his plan to sail into Pabe, that northern part of Moahu, disguised as a whaler, and board the Franklin in the smoke. Uh, we also had a great time talking with Josh Corey last week. Yeah. Now, this time... Jack and the surprises sail into Moahu, hoping to secure Queen Pulalani's allegiance and defend her against the Norse attack. They hunt for the Franklin. They find another ship. We see action once here in the beginning of Chapter 9 and start to suffer and enjoy the spoils of war as we learn more about Clarissa and work towards resolving the gunroom's dilemma. Wow. All seems to be coming to a head here. Great job. Now, Mike, I want to do a little shout out to a listener here. A big hello to YouTube subscriber and serial commenter, Special Agent Fox Mulder. Hello, sir. How are you? One of our most prolific commenters who's, I I love this comment last week, we're actually not at the Lubber's Hole. We should even maybe consider renaming the episode this week. We're not the Lubber's Hole. This is the Crow's Nest because that's the correct name for a podcast that is a shabby, down-at-heel, disguised version of its former self, which is exactly where the surprise is as we open the chapter. So well spotted for the change of situation here. Uh, Fox Mulder, thanks very much. The text says, An old, tired, shabby whaler with a crow's nest aloft, general filth on deck, and deeply squalid sides stands into the port of Pabe, the port belonging to Kalahua, the northern chief on this island. And that's the scene as we open the chapter. Of course, the the crow's nest is not really a crow's nest. It's the disguised surprise and the shabbier master in his blackguardly black round hat crammed up against his unshaven mate is in fact Jack Aubrey and the unshaven mate is Tom Pullings and they're examining the harbour. They don't see a battery of guns on either side. They don't see a privateer. They do see what they are 100% sure is a Nuka fur trader. And of course, that's the true love. The eponymous ship sitting low in the water with yards crossed and sails bent. So obviously now in pretty good shape. The point of view switches as O'Brien loves to. We switch to Stephen and Martin, who are doing their own examination of the island. But they're at the mizzen top. They're wondering what birds and vegetation the volcanic island has to offer. They're talking about the natural history of volcanoes. Jack notices, back in the main top there, only women and children in the village. And Mike, just for a minute here, I got this chill of, you know, are we going back to Sweeting Island and disease and smallpox? But 
No, there are women and children there. Wainwright had said that the village was full of people, so obviously something is afoot. Jack slides down a backstage to the quarter deck, calls for Owen, who speaks the local language, to come and speak with the two girls who are the crew of this canoe, this local craft that's setting off now to come and meet the surprise. The girls see the surprises, American colors, these false colors, this ruse de guerre, and they tell them that what they presume to be their friend, the Franklin, is off chasing a ship and is going to meet them in Iahu. That's the harbor belonging to Queen Pualani in the south. She says the men have gone to war. Kalahu has taken a gun and gone to eat Queen Pualani. So we know exactly where we are in the story here. Meanwhile, the true love lowers a boat, and we see landsmen, obviously not sailors, lowering themselves down into the stern sheets. Jack thinks this could be a moment here for a bit of deception, for a bit of a sleight of hand. He tells West then to have all the boats ready to launch at a moment's notice and shouts down through the hatch to tell Davidge to have his men in that flying column ready to stand by. The boat that set off from the True Love hails in what seems to be kind of an American voice. What ship is that? And the surprise responds with his made-up name, the Titus Oates, and asks then where Mr. Dutour is. They say he's out chasing and he's going to meet the Miniahu in three to four days. So this reply is lining up with what we've heard so far from the girls in the canoe. They ask for tobacco and wine and they get invited aboard. And now they get to realize what's actually afoot here. Jack sails the surprise in between the boat and the shore, tells the quartermaster at the very last minute as the boat hooks on to hoist their own, their British colors knowing that the colors are going to stream toward the shore. They won't really be visible. So he's meeting the needs of form and decency, but he's managing to maintain this deceit about the surprise's real identity until it's really too late for the mercenaries who are coming aboard. Certain forms, as Jack says, have to be observed. And Mike, the the name of this made-up ship that they're describing themselves as, the Titus Oats, that's a bit of a fascinating thing to dig into, isn't it? It, it is. And I was shocked because I've been listening to this on audio the whole time and I kept hearing the tide is out. And I thought, well, that's a nice name for, you know, an innocuous name for <laughs> the ship. The tide is out. But then I picked up the book. Yes, there's Titus Oates. And I was like, wait, 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 wait. And I could find no ship by this name. But not surprisingly, given mm. the truly despicable man that is Titus Oates, you know, 1649 to 1705. He was uh, uh, kind of a false English priest, a man who'd kind of made up his Cambridge diploma, who was directly responsible with one other guy, but the primary instigator of what's been called the Popish Plot, you know, a supposed Catholic conspiracy to kill King Charles II, which, you know, completely fabricated, resulted into the death of at least 35 innocent Catholics, a lot of very, very highly placed people. And this guy just, you know, it's funny because, you know, you kind of, you know, you, you watch Twitter and the news today and you think, how can people just make stuff up? But apparently this has been going on for centuries. So yeah. This guy uh, left Cambridge, no degree, lied about having one, becomes a Church of England vicar. In his first posting, he accuses a schoolmaster of sodomy with a student, hoping to get for himself the schoolmaster's post. But the charge is shown to be false. And this guy's charged with perjury, flees to London, is appointed chaplain of HMS Adventure from 1675 to 1676. He, in turn, is dismissed the service for sodomy, not put to death because he was a cleric, albeit not an actual one. 
and he joins a Catholic household of a duke as an Anglican chaplain to their Protestant members. Then he turns around in 1677 and joins the Catholic Church, you know, wants to become a priest. At the same time, he starts co-authoring anti-Catholic pamphlets with somebody else. Turns out a lot of this, it's kind of like Watergate. You just follow the money. Anything he could get paid for, he was doing here. But the Catholics throw him out because he's incompetent in Latin. He's got blasphemous conversations and he has attacks on the British monarchy. So he's attacking the Protestant king while he's a Catholic here. He returns to London. He rekindles a friendship with a guy who already has kind of been wildly anti-Catholic here. And he tells this guy that he was actually not joining the Catholics, but was there to, to spy on them and has unearthed this huge plot to assassinate Charles II. Now, he's collecting all kinds of bribes and rewards along the way. And so, uh, you know, the two of them, Oates and his partner, write up these great conspiracy theories. They make bold acquisitions. And, you know, a lot of people, including the king, go, you know, I don't believe any of this stuff, but indeed, some people it catches the ear of, and they're people who really wanted to believe this or wanted it to be true, mm. regardless of whether there was evidence or not. And Oakes has got apparently a pretty superb memory, has real dramatic performances. It appears perhaps forged a number of letters, and he ends up being given by the Privy Council a squad of soldiers to round up Jesuits, including some who had been very kind and kind of helped his ascent in the past. He claimed that the queen was working with the king's physician to poison the king. And it's wild watching this. I'll tell you, I'm getting such a sense of deja vu that, um, you know, this guy would be thrown in prison, taken out, given a house and a pension, accused again, taken out, back to a pension. I mean, back and forth. (laughs) Like as every monarch changed, you know, they were either putting him back in, letting them back out. He'd be pilloried. No, no, he's a hero again. I did think, I, I hated this in a way, and I kept thinking, why? Why did O'Brien put this in here? But I did note that the last person to be put to death in this crazy conspiracy theory-driven purge was a Catholic archbishop who was the primate of all Ireland. So, you know, ah, to death in 1681. Now, Fast forward later in history, he was beatified in 1920 and canonized in 1975, becoming the first new Irish saint in about 700 years. So maybe, you know, this Titus Oates is to point us to uh, this Catholic archbishop. But really fascinating. What an Easter egg here, the name of this innocuous ship. Yeah, it's, and it's funny. I've always seen the name, and I've connected it with exploration. I thought, oh yeah, Titus Oates, and now and now I realise why I had that connection. Um, no, nowhere near our timeline in the uh, exploration of the Antarctic of, of the, the South Pole by Captain Robert Falcon Scott. Um, one of his co-explorers was a guy called Titus Oates, who's famously the guy who went out into the snow to basically end his own life to stop the team having to look after him with his famous quote, I'm going outside and maybe sometime. That was a guy called, his first name wasn't Titus, but his nickname was Titus. So this explorer Titus, and I just kind of, the the name rang a bell and I'm like, oh yeah, it's the explorer, it's the explorer. Not realizing A, that that Titus Oates reference is way afterwards our timeline, but actually this is a way better one. So Oates, the South Atlantic explorer was given the nickname 
for this original guy, Titus Oates, the, the kind of person who gives Catholics a bad name. <laughs> right, right. Oh, man. Fantastic job. Well, having given us that in just one little throwaway moment, I mean, not, not even the name of a character, it's the name of a, 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 a ship's name that is assumed by the cast for just a few seconds here, and we get all of that richness behind it. We get three landsmen now coming aboard the surprise with pistols, um, leaving behind one of the landsmen in the boat who also has a pistol, and they don't notice the canvas strips that are disguising the surprises guns. They don't really notice that the gear, the whaling gear on deck is rather improbable. And they're asking again about wine and tobacco when Jax says, West Bonden, make sure the men get served properly, make sure they're looked after, but make sure they're kept constrained. So they're arrested. They're put in Bilbo's in the forehold, Bilbo's being an iron bar with sliding shackles. And, uh, Jack has Stephen get the other landsmen to come aboard. And they're all basically taken prisoner, taken hostage. The mercenaries there, though, there are a few seamen. The, the seamen who are rowing the boat here, they're actually, they, they smoke this plot from way off. These are the original true loves. These are the, like the ship's company of the true love who say, we, we, we knew far ahead of time. One of them introduces himself to Jack, pulls off his hat and says, William Hoskins, sir, armorer's mate in Polycrest, now belonging to the true love. So he's got form with Jack going way, way back to the beginning of the canon. He says there are a score of Frenchmen in the True Love, plus only the other one in the boat. Uh, and notices that the True Love's the oarsman there, quietly but urgently drowning this um, right. other French mercenary. And Jack says, no, stop, stop, stop. That's not, that's not a polite way to go on. Brings them aboard for grog. So all of a sudden, the tables have almost completely been turned on this bunch of Frenchmen left behind. Not quite completely, though. There's still some urgent action needed on the part of Jack. The surprise moves close inshore. Jack tells to Davidge with the flying column that they need to get to the road by the stream and into the mountains and head off any Frenchmen, those Frenchmen who were still nonetheless aboard the True Love, to stop them from reaching Kalahua and his men, who might be less than a day's march away. And Mike, this first piece of action now unfolds in classic O'Brien form. It was seen all through the point of view of Jack and Stephen, all as it were through a telescope from the ship. And it's really agonizing, this very partial, this very imperfect view that we have. The surprises, man and arm, the boats, the Frenchmen in the true love gather their bundles and head ashore into the village toward the stream. Jack has sent Davidge ahead. He's trying to get them to head off the Frenchmen he sends him with just those men that he can get mobilized quickly and says, the next party of surprises are coming ashore behind you. They're going to catch you up. After the cutter and the gig were underway, Jack watches this little skirmish, this scuffle, this action play out from up in the foretop. The surprises men are all drawn out in a line because Davidge is running ahead. He's running to save his career here. The Frenchmen see them coming and start to run for the narrow gorge in the mountain along the road that's been cut for the gun. And the tech says, the line was becoming still more drawn out, Davidge going like a thoroughbred. He was running not indeed for his life, but for his living, for all that made life worthwhile. The surprises, other boats land and the second parties of men are creeping into the woods to follow up and reinforce and support Davidge's party who are ashore here. Davidge gets to the stream first as the lines of men start to converge. He crosses the stream, climbs up the far bank and stands pretty much alone, at least in Jack's view of the scene here, he can just see Davidge standing alone facing the three leading Frenchmen. He runs through the first with his sword, pistols the second, but is brought down, clubbed by the musket 
of the third Frenchman. The two lines come together and dust covers the hand-to-hand fighting. And again, we're, we're with Jack, many hundreds of meters away at Ankara. We can't see what's going on here. We hear musket shots ring out. The surprises reinforcements have clearly arrived and they're starting to pick off the Frenchman from behind. As the dust settles, it's clear that Davidge's party have won this bout. But Mike, we're still not sure of the real outcome here. No, no. You know, Jack takes the surprise alongside the true love and then goes immediately ashore with Stephen, Martin, and, and Owen, their, you know, their Polynesian interpreter here. And, and Jack is more exhausted, it tells us, than if he'd taken part of the battle himself. We, we remember this all the way back from the Commodore, how hard it is for Jack to be sending other people and he wants to be right there. And they're, they're met by a small group carrying Davidge's dead body here. Uh, the men report one other dead and several too hurt to move, but they also report that there are no French survivors. So, you know, they wanted to know, did anybody get through to warn Kalahua? No, nobody got through at all. This, this is an echo we'll hear in this, in this chapter. Last chapter, it was the devil all the time. This one is when, when war isn't joined here, it's pretty final. Yeah. Well, they find out that there were a number of true loves who had hidden in a taboo place that Tapia, uh, this is a, a Sandwich Island chief's son who speaks English. And he had been on the island when the when the true loves had gotten attacked by the French. He had ushered a number of them into this taboo place and kind of kept communications through his girlfriend on the island. Jack is delighted because uh, Tapia speaks English. He knows the waters around there. And so he's going to be able to pilot them through the reefs at night. And Steve is saying, well, you know, tomorrow is another day. What, what, you know, what are we leaving at night for anyways? <laughs> and Jack tells him that he's now learned, having talked to Tapia and others there on shore, that, you know, that Kalua means to attack on Friday, whether he's, he's, he's kind of rolling this great gun over the mountains. And whether he can get the gun there or not, his gods tell him that Friday is the day that he cannot be defeated. So... Uh, Jack says, you know, if the surprise and the true love can't get out on this ebb with the current wind, they actually may not be able to go until the next moon. So it's all for naught. And Jack's plan is to get out now, get to Iahu by Wednesday, tell Pulalani she's about to be attacked and defend her if she promises to love King George. He -hmm. wants to be sure they get there in time so he has a full day to prepare the defenses. And he's also learned that Detoured now has a Yankee sailing master for the Franklin. So, you know, before they weren't as worried about the Franklin because Detoured was not a sailor. But now this guy, this Yankee sailing master, you know, drives the ship. It's a real flyer. And and Jack concedes to Stephen that her 22 nine-pounders, that is a, a full 99-pound broadside, are really no match for the surprises, 168 pounds, not counting the carronades. But you know, as Stephen will recall, a fight can always turn on one lucky shot. So his idea is he would much rather get there, deal with Kalahua and the men coming over the mountains first before facing the Franklin and perhaps the prize that she's out chasing, you know, if she is bringing that back. Yeah. And Mike, it's really striking, not with a great roll of drums, not with any great drama, but all of a sudden we've clicked back into Patrick O'Brien naval action mode. I'm really surprised that nobody has said up to this point, there's not a moment to lose because there really is not a moment to lose. Right. The ebbing has turned to a stream, a gurgling stream around the stern of the boat. 
uh, the surprise and the true love move away through the narrows and they come around successfully on the first leg. The true loves are cheering the the maneuver that pulling is and the crew pull off here. The surprises, it says, would have joined in the ship's cheer had Davager's body not been lying on deck, sewn up in his hammock with cannonballs at his feet. Both ships clear the harbour and it's time to say farewell to Davage in the proper way. Out in the steady wind, Martin says what the text describes as the properly deeply moving words and Davage's men fire three volleys as a salute as his body slides over the side. And as we say goodbye to Davage, I mean, obviously there's the tragedy of him having striven to regenerate his career and overcome this feud that he was having with West and it ended up in his death. But there's an unfinished part of the story here. A little bit like we were talking about with Josh, we never really get details about who Clarissa slept with, but the circumstances suggest, Mike, that Davidge was pretty deeply in the middle of this whole intrigue involving Clarissa. And we can't help wondering about Davidge's fate here. We've got, as you might say, rain falling on the just and the unjust alike, um, a little bit like an echo of Dylan's death in a way. And certainly, like Dylan, Davidge had been wanting to prove himself to Jack and prove himself to the Navy um, fighting for his living. That evening, right after Davidge's uh, burial, Stephen comes on deck. He says to escape the sick birth's fated air and to, to, to step away from having to manage what he calls the shockingly neglected and mortifying wounds of the true loves who've come aboard ship in bad shape. And it's almost, I get this feeling that the book has turned some big corner here. It's like lots of the previous situations that we've been tolerating and tolerating and intensifying and intensifying aboard the surprise have suddenly been turned around and you get this very strong feeling that it was going into battle that's brought all of this about. So Stephen has stopped being this Zen-like counsellor, this kind of Yoda figure for everybody, and he's somehow back into his role as surgeon and he's worn out and jaded and a little bit sickened by it. His hands are still bloody even though he's washed his clothes. Jack is back in captain mode. He's no longer trying to socially engineer this fractious group of rival males. He's no longer trying to bring the ship's company and the gun room all back together again. Warfare and seamanship are back at the top of his agenda, and he's dealing with the aftermath of the battle. That doesn't mean he's happy. He's very down and dispirited and mournful for the loss of Davidge, but he's back in what we would call regular Jack territory. Nathaniel Martin... He's no longer agonizing over sin and self-reflection in his sermons. We're back to Nathaniel Martin playing the traditional parson's role, saying those formal traditional rituals over his fallen shipmate. And the ship's crew, we noticed, they, they bungled the last departure. But this much more complex unmooring and departure maneuver with all of the warps and the mooring and the setting of sail, much more complex, much more risky, much more pressure because they need to depart quickly. They pull it off with no mistakes. And Mike, all, all of a sudden, we're, we're back in the way that we expected to be, I think. And, and maybe, again, a little bit thinking back to the conversation with Josh last week, maybe men on a warship somehow need warfare and the prospect of warfare to keep their social order from breaking down. And so far, Mike, it seems like the only person on board ship whose situation isn't a little bit transformed by this action is Clarissa. But to be fair, the chapter's far from over at this point. Those are great insights. It, it really is turning here. And, and O'Brien 
you know, in his true fashion, doesn't, you know, doesn't put this in caps, doesn't highlight it. He yeah. just moves on. And we're there, you know, we're watching just as Clarissa is watching back over the taffrail. As Stephen comes up, she's staring at the phosphorescent sea. And he sits down to talk with her as they often do. And she tells him that Oaks was grieved not to be part of the landing party. So there's kind of one thought. Mm. And she also says she's afraid that Captain Aubrey was sadly upset by the casualties from today, as yeah. you were just saying, Ian, you know, and this is, you know, we see this so often with Jack that, you know, he's completely there in battle and afterwards, you know, it, it really gets to him. And Stephen says that in fact, you know, the captain was uh, you know, deeply upset, but like others who are used to fighting from their youth, were they, as the text says, to mourn for their companions as long as they might in civil life, they would run melancholy mad. And, and I thought that was an interesting little juxtaposition here. You know, yeah. Clarissa is talking about how sad Jack is of the casualties. Not that she has any reaction whatsoever. Stephen's pointing out about people who are having to fight all their life. And it occurs to me, Clarissa has been fighting for her life as well, all her life. And, and maybe Green she Brian too isn't quite, you know, attached to people in that way. Um, I thought that was a fascinating, just a little moment between them. Well, Oaks is still on watch. He comes by and he wishes the doctor joy of their prize. You know, everybody's talking about the true love here. And he asks if it's true that the guns had been spiked. And Stephen tells him, yeah, all but one, that Captain Hardy, the former captain of the true love and his mates were spiking it when the French killed them. And they had used steel spikes, which the Franklin's gunner couldn't deal with. So when the Franklin went chasing, they'd left her behind. Well, Oak says the prize money couldn't come at a better time for Clarissa and him. And, and you know, O'Brien tells us that Stephen observes that Oak's earnestness in speaking brings this look of what he calls tolerant affection from Clarissa. So she's regarding Oaks, you know, this kind of like, oh, you know, isn't he he cute the way he cares for us and me here, right? Well, it turns out that the True Love's merchant clerk, who was now aboard the surprise here, had told them the exact value of her cargo, which is immense. (laughs) They've stored lots of her from other ships here. And the crew members are all now, as they always are, reckoning their share. Oaks says that even Emily and Sarah will get close to nine pounds and are currently planning to buy the doctor a blue coat lined with white, whatever the cost. Uh-huh. Stephen, you know, says, what, Sarah and Emily, you know, on the ship's rolls? And, you know, Oaks informs them that the captain had rated them boys third class so that Jimmy Ducks would have their allowance, you know, for quite some time. But now, as it turns out, it's going to work to their favor. And as Oaks and Stephen are in this conversation, there's kind of a a little bit of a comic but interesting interlude with Clarissa here. Yeah, just coming back to this idea of things being returned back to normal, we have a bit of nature intervening here as Clarissa and Stephen are sitting chatting on the deck. Clarissa gives this cry. Oh, she cries out and pulls a writhing viscous object from the front of her dress. Stephen tells her it's a flying squid and... It should have 10 legs if she chooses to count them to verify that it is what he says. She says, even if it has 50 legs, it's got no business spoiling my dress. And she tosses it over the rail, but she's very kind of mild and deadpan about it. She, she says, she says, fly off, sir. Whereas I think most women I know with a squid on their front would probably use more choice vocabulary than that. She really doesn't seem able to get rattled by everyday stuff like this. 
So meanwhile, her husband Oakes returns to his watch and Stephen asks Clarissa if she would welcome the opportunity to return to England. And Mike, there's a, there's a, yet another restoration. We're going back into Stephen in spying and set, you know setting up schemes mode once again. Clarissa says about this idea of returning to England that she's only thought so far about getting away from New South Wales. And if she had, as the text says, not with great perseverance contrived to make myself so generally disliked, she could think of nothing better than sailing on and on and on. And of, of course, that's a joke. She realizes that it's not about her persevering to contrive to make herself disliked. She's realizing that she's become disliked. And there's a nice little moment of self-awareness from her. She's learned something about the effect of her behavior on people, people in the, in the everyday world rather than in the strange world of abuse and prostitution that she's been in. Right. And she's realizing as well that even despite her good intentions, her actions are not getting her better liked. In fact, it's quite the opposite. So Stephen asks Clarissa then if she would rejoice at seeing England again if the captain happened to send the true love off under Oakes's command. She realises that if she gets recognised in England, she'd be sent back to New South Wales, which is something that she couldn't bear. And Stephen reassures her that he believes as a married woman staying away from St. James's Street and Mother Abbott's, she has less chance of being recognised than being struck by lightning. And he adds that he has connections who are, to use his uh, metaphor here, lightning conductors themselves. Stephen tells her that he's speaking to her as a discreet, honourable friend who understands the value of silence. And he can give her a letter to take to a friend of his, which I'm pretty sure he's referring to Joseph Blaine here, who can protect Clarissa if she's taken up. So Mike, the... The transformation is just about complete here. It turns out there's transformation in the offing for Oaks and for Clarissa here. Yeah, I'm 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 absolutely loving this. And and yeah. sure enough, you know, we kind of see that transformation continue. Clarissa's thinking through this. She says that, you know, she'd she'd rather be in England, but that a midshipman has no half pay. You know, if he's on shore, he's not making any money. And that she certainly can't go back to work at Mother Abbott's now. And Stephen says, well, you know, Captain Aubrey and my friend have great influence at the Admiralty. And if they can't get Oakes pass for lieutenant and get him a ship, she can set up house with Mr. Oakes for the time yeah. being. If Mr. Oakes, however, does go to sea, he'll give Clarissa a letter to his wife and she can stay with Diana while Oakes is at sea. And then Stephen starts talking a bit randomly, the text says, about his wife's big house and all her Arabians. But clearly a troubled Clarissa doesn't appear to be listening. Yeah. And then she stops Stephen and she says, well, but what, what would happen if she had done something wrong while at Botany Bay, say like a capital crime, like throwing a baby down a well, Ooh. you know, and you know, I'm, I'm with you and I'm just like, <laughs> what? <laughs> and, and she's asking, you know, would they send word back to England? Would she have to go back to Botany Bay for a trial? And Stephen assures her that if she is discreet in England, the protection that he's offering will, in his words, the text says, cover her from a multitude of sins, many or even most of them capital. So he's he's kind of saying, you know, this this is a real get out of jail free card. And which yeah. which also sounded a little bit like Titus Oates earlier here. Uh, uh, in a different way. 
He tells her to speak to no one about this now and to let him know in the morning. So, you know, as we just noted there, we have yet another massive reveal in Clarissa's character. And I have to say that, like you, Ian, I was thinking this thing is really, you know, coming along and her and Oaks and all of that. But now I'm sitting here thinking, okay, Stephen, you just said, you know, I'm going to give you a letter to my wife to send you home to live with my wife and my newborn baby daughter. Uh, you threw a baby down a well, did you? Hmm. I, I don't know. Stephen doesn't sound like he's having a pause here, but I'm having a great one. Right. And even if she didn't, she's willing to speak lightly about it as something that might have happened, which is just as bad in a way. And there's this really delicious kind of ambiguity. Is she as bad as she mentions in conversation? Uh, or is it something else? It's it's really, really clever writing to keep us guessing about the character of Clarissa Oaks. Anyhow, in the morning, as they come up on Iahu, a boat comes over from the True Love. Pullings, who is in command as, the, as, the, as its prize captain right now, tells Jack that Mr. Smith the gunner wishes to report that the armorer has unspiked the True Love's guns. And we had had this little explanation earlier on in a, in a dialogue with Clarissa about what spiking was. And it's clearly, this is this is quite a feat for an armorer to do this successfully with a whole bunch of guns this quickly. Jack sends deserved congratulations to armorer Rogers on what he calls this illustrious deed. And at breakfast, goes on to tell Stephen that the gun room problems might be solved if Jack were to send Oaks in with the prize. But he doesn't want to order what he calls that good, modest woman, Clarissa, to go back to England if she doesn't choose to. And this is great. Nice bit of plot set up here. It turns out that the machinations that Stephen's already been discussing with Clarissa turn out to be amenable to something that Jack might do anyway. And you, you kind of wonder which is cause and effect. Who's, whose other ears is Stephen dropping these ideas into? And he's dropping right back here, I think, into his, into his kind of intelligence officer mode where he can set up these situations to his advantage. Jack asks Stephen to find out if Clarissa does indeed want to go back uh, with Oaks before they go ashore after dinner. He wants Queen Puolani to have time to learn from the canoes what the surprise is doing there. I love this little mention that Jack gives to how how disagreeable it might be if Queen Puolani gets caught out here. She will not be caught unprepared. It is a dreadful thing, he says, to have a whole carriage full of people draw up at your door and leap out grinning, the house all a who, carpets taken up, a great washing going on, the children bawling, yourself confined to the head having taken physic, and your wife gone to Pompey in hopes of a new cook. <laughs> Uh, by the way, P- Pompey being the naval name for Portsmouth, I'm very, very sure that Jack is talking about me- maybe a fictitious, but perhaps even a real situation that he's encountered in his life in the past. Well, I, I think on that note, you know, rather than getting anybody caught out unprepared, we should all take a little break here. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm heading off to Pompey in hopes of a new cook, and I hope I'll be back in time for the return after the break here. <laughs> If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back from break. I hope nobody's taken any physic because we'd like you with us here (laughs) undeterred for the next little bit as we continue on in chapter nine. Well, The surprise as they're waiting for the queen to kind of learn all the news from the canoes 
is busy as well. You know, she's getting her carronades ready to come ashore. They're blackening their muskets so that they're not seen as they, you know, go through the woods. They're preparing pikes and bayonets, boarding axes, cutlasses, pistols, and murdering pieces to be used in the ambush that they're planning to set here. They gather up their medical supplies and a large store of presents for the queen and her court, along with a special gold crown piece that uh, Jack is having strung from a sky blue ribbon. He wants to be able to give Queen Pualani the image of King George if she accepts his protection here. So everyone is also dressing up in complete, you know, fancy dress party outfits because they want to show off their rank because this is the accepted Polynesian reception custom here. So we're all, you know, getting everything ready, getting ready to go ashore. Fantastic. We've been anticipating dinners large and small for many, many books now, but it's nice to anticipate a dinner going ashore. I even think, Mike, as I flip backwards through the chapters of previous books, the last time we had a big set-piece dinner ashore was when Stephen and the uh, the guys in New South Wales fell out and started sticking swords in each other. So this is, I'm, I'm looking forward to this, but I'm kind of aware of what could kick off here. As they're all getting ready to get dressed, Clarissa comes to see Stephen. And Stephen thinks that she's doing the best that he's ever seen medically. She's been in indifferent health and he's been examining her and everything's been going on. But now she seems, back to this theme of transformation in this chapter, she seems to be in good shape in terms of her health. He's stopping the mercury that he was giving her before for what we presume was a venereal disease. She thanks him for the treatment and tells him that she would very much like to go back to England if the possibility should come up. So another little block falls into place in Stephen's scheme here. Stephen tells her that the captain wants to send Oakes in with the true love, but won't do that unless she's okay with it. Stephen gives her a letter for Sir Joseph Blaine, who was the friend that he'd talked about before, telling Blaine nothing about Clarissa's history and what she'd been up to and what she'd experienced in her youth, just refers to her having kept books at Mother Abbott's. He says to her that Blaine is not going to ask any impertinent questions and that she should tell Sir Joseph everything that she knows of Ledwood and Ray and their friends and the Dukes and the people with the garter and the people Mm -hmm. that she'd met in these peculiar parties. He also sends along with her a gift of beetles for her to give to Sir Joseph. Nothing could better guarantee your good faith, he says, than a beetle. He's very, very pleased that she doesn't mind carrying the beetles with her. And he also gives her letters to his bankers in Batavia and London to assure her and Oakes a comfortable trip home on an East Indiaman and to tide them over until their prize money comes in. She's about to give her reply to this. She says, this is very, very... uh," And then Stephen cuts her off. He says, a small loan between friends is no great thing. He gives her a note to Mrs. Broad at the inn and tells her exactly and explicitly how to go and conduct her visit to Sir Joseph, remembering here that until she's under Sir Joseph's protection, she's at risk, perhaps, of being caught up and tried and sent back to New South Wales. He also gives her, and Mike, this is a big risk, I think, or at least a big sign of confidence in the situation. He gives her a letter for Diana and says that he thinks she, Diana, will ask Clarissa to stay with her until Stephen and the captain return from the seas. And Stephen says he hesitates to say anything about Mr. Oakes's discretion. And Clarissa says he may rely on it since Oakes really knows nothing. He knows nothing about the details of Clarissa's background, knows nothing about the situation of her being in New South Wales. And partly because, and she's about to give another reason we, we can speculate about, 
but they're cut off by the calls on deck to go ashore. Clarissa helps Stephen change in a hurry. He blesses her, says thank you, arrives on deck to Jack shouting, Hell and death! Where is the doctor? Will no one rouse me out that doctor? So, Mike, here we go. It's party time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can just imagine Stephen walking up, hearing Jack bellowing this out there. Yeah. Well, the scene changes, and they're receiving this very stately, formal welcome ashore. And Tapia is translating for them as they bring their trunk load of gifts in. They look around the room. And Jack notices that the queen wears a you know a complete kind of shoulders to floor splendid feather cloak, but that every other person in the room, male or female, young or old, is bare to the waist. Mm-hmm. And Tapia instructs Jack how to lay down a breadfruit tree branch to show that he comes in peace, you know, on top of the branches that the islanders have laid down, offering their peace. And then when Tapia in- introduces Queen Pulani, Tapia takes off his shirt and bows. So, um, you know, I don't know. Jack's, you know, Jack's doing well. I, I would be sitting here starting to think, uh-oh, maybe I'm supposed to get my yeah. shirt off here. But yeah. she walks over and shakes Jack's hand in the European manner. So, you know, this is a this is a pretty impressive queen here. Uh, yeah. There are introductions, a meal. Jack's unfortunately just had dinner, so he's sipping a lot of kava. And, you know, watching as he supervises the handing out of presents. And Jack notices that the queen is asking a number of questions, but then sees that they're really just a matter of form. He realizes that she really already knows the answers, but is asking out of politeness. So I think Mm. we can kind of see that Jack's esteem for this queen growing and growing, that this is not just some islander. This is, uh, you know, and, and, and fascinatingly, you know, we're kind of seeing... Queen Pualani, we've seen Clarissa, we've talked about Diana. Here we are, another very strong woman here. And after the meal, she sends everyone out of the room except her two highest counselors, and Jack keeps only Stephen and Tapia with him. Mm. So she's a savvy political operator. She knows how to set herself up for political head-to-head discussions here. Jack explains to her the impending arrival of Kalahua coming to attack along with the Americans. She says she knows already they've been scouting out their party. She says they're likely to arrive early the day after tomorrow. He's not to worry about the gun. He, Jack, has many bigger and better guns and muskets. His country is at war with the Americans, he explains to her, and he will guard the queen if she accepts the protection of King George and promises to be a faithful and loving ally. And as this is getting translated here, the Polynesians all brighten at the idea of this alliance. She welcomes the king's protection. She says she'll be faithful to King George as she was to her own husband. And Tapia translates her answer, but says the last part rather flatly. And her counsellors look down as she does so. And maybe they are, they're, they're a bit nervous about her equating faithfulness to her late husband with faithfulness to King George. I, I don't think, Mike, we've discovered quite what the circumstances were of her late husband departing, but... That, that might we'll come back to we'll stick a pin in that, right? I think we'll come back to that, right? <laughs> Jack looks at her with admiration, says, they must prepare. And this is Jack Aubrey talking about imminent action. He says, there's not a moment to lose. So, Mike, there was all this uncertainty about whether Queen Pulani would accept King George's protection, whether Jack would need any help, would there need to be any schemes or stratagems, but it's all gone just fine. They've sat down at the meal, they've drunk kava together, and Queen Pulani, it turns out, is on side. Now, preparations begin. 
They anchor the ships so that the ships can't be seen from the hills by Kalahur as he's in his army arrive. They unload the carronades in the darkness to be on the safe side. Jack says he's examined the potential battlefields along with the Queen's soldiers. And in the great cabin of the surprise later on, Jack goes on to explain to Stephen that he's sorry that Stephen's had to tend patients all day and didn't get to see the birds. You would, he says, have rejoiced in the birds. There was one with a beak. <laughs> and St Stephen joins the deadpan banter. He says, ah, a bird with a beak. That alone, he says, would have been worth the voyage. And <laughs> Jack gives this description of the bird. Mike, I, I, I think we're meant, if we've got a little bit of penetration into the world of birds, we're meant to pick up that this sounds a bit like a great hornbill. And he goes on and describes the three potential battlefields. We don't get to dwell on the details of the great hornbill, but we do get to dwell on the details of the battlefields here. Yeah, we've had, Jack learns that typically you know, attacks from the north are repelled by the queen sending her great war canoes north, you know, via via the sea, and that the attackers who've come down have to run back to defend their homes and families. And this also coincides with them building these dry stone walls and kind of trying to cut the, the northerners off from getting to them. Well, this time, Kalahua is counting on the Franklin coming in so he doesn't have to worry about the war canoes heading up north. And Jack, having looked at the three battles, says that this natural cleft where this drywall is typically assembled to protect the South is what he thinks is the right place for him to make his defense here. It's a deep cleft with remarkably steep sides. And he's thinking that since Kalalua knows that the Franklin will be there, Kalalua is likely to send his entire force into the cleft, planning to destroy the wall, which is usually assembled there with his cannon, and that this 200-yard-long, 20-yard-wide cleft will hold Kalahua's entire force. With that in mind, Jack's plan is to put carronades at the north entrance hidden by dry stone walls, and he'll draw Kalahua in with some of the Queen's men, having them run back before the firing starts. And he won't fire the northern guns until everybody moves into the cleft. And the rear is going to be pressing up against the van, and the guns at the southern end will start. So that, you know, he's thinking, I'm going to have guns at both sides. I'm going to let them all get into this big canyon. I'm going to fire the northern guns, which will push everybody up, and then the southern guns, which will cut them to pieces in the front. And Stephen, listening to this, I think is a bit put off, and he, he asks, you know, will there be nowhere and no way for them to retreat? And Jack assures him, nope, no line of retreat. Stephen says he thought it was a military maxim to always leave the enemy a line of retreat. And Jack says the Navy is required to take, sink, burn, or destroy. But the people who started this are merely getting what they ask for. They are getting destroyed. Besides, he says, they can always call for quarter. And I think, you know, we had this earlier, no Frenchman, you know, survive this uh, in Pabé. Here, Jack is giving a plan where everybody gets wiped out. And I think Stevens, you know, kind of, he doesn't say anything, but I can only imagine what's going on in his mind here. And, and probably yeah. is thinking, gosh, you know, there's, there's a good reason why you leave a line of retreat sometimes. Yeah. And it sounds like the the straight go get a military mentality of Jack here is something that's le less humane than Stephen would have been hoping for. Right. And then Anyhow, we, we know Jack for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So Jack calls for Oaks once Stephen has gone back to the sick berth and talks Oaks through what's coming next. 
explains that all the officers and warrant officers will be on shore sleeping in the countryside. He wants Oaks, therefore, to take command of the ship. Reed, young Reed, is going to command the prize. If the Franklin returns while this is all going on, he, Oaks, is to engage her no closer than a quarter mile, fighting one side and not going beyond the line between the two headlands. Very detailed instructions, quite limited, quite carefully constrained rules of engagement for Oaks here. Remember, he's a fairly junior commander. He's really only still a warrant officer, but he's being given a lot of responsibility. It's great, though, that Jack is giving him some limits as to what he can do and what his responsibility extends to. Does does Oaks have any questions? Oaks says, well, with respect, I didn't have a go at Pabe and that earlier attack on the Frenchman that had led to the death of Davidge. And he hasn't had a go at regaining the captain's esteem. And Jack says, it's true, I was mad. I was angry about you bringing Mrs. Oaks aboard, but you've behaved in a seaman-like, officer-like fashion. And Jack intends to make Oaks the prize master of the true love with orders to take her to Batavia if Oaks feels competent to command her. And again, we've seen this before, Jack really carefully choosing his moments to motivate his people with a really well-chosen moment to give them a step up in command and give them a reward for good behavior up to this point. And Oaks, of course, is grateful for this. Jack is going to make him an acting lieutenant and send some master mariners along to stand their own watch aboard the true love and to keep their own navigational reckoning to assist Oaks. And maybe he has a slightly lower confidence in Oaks's command of mathematics and navigation here. He's also going to make Oaks an advance on prize money to get him and his wife home from Batavia. And Mike, I, I'm not quite sure whether Jack and Stephen are coordinated here or whether the two of them independently are planning to, to advance a little something for Mr. and Mrs. Oaks. He sent Oaks over to the Trula then to get acquainted with his expected future command, to get acquainted with the ship and her people. And we learn that Oaks is almost laughing with pleasure and says, can I tell my wife first? Nice. Nice. Well, with all the work done ashore, the men returned to the surprise to be taken off by Pualani's canoes first thing in the morning. And at supper, Jack tells Stephen how amazed and delighted Oaks has been. And, and I think Jack is also sort of amazed and delighted. He says Clarissa had not told him anything, though she must have known from Stephen's earlier questions what Jack had in mind. And Stephen says just how much he values Clarissa. What a jewel of a woman she is. Then Jack asks Stephen what he thinks of Pualani. Stephen says she's a magnificently queenly woman, a Juno. And Juno is is quite the reference here. This is This is a Roman goddess who... You know, besides you know being married uh, to the the king of the gods, so she's she's the queen of the gods. Is also seen as a warrior, seen as a protector of the state, seen as a protector of woman, seen as the fertility. She rolls a lot of the other goddesses, if you will, up into one here. But so she's a Juno, very high praise. But that he hopes that she doesn't have Juno's fits of temper. So again, you know, interesting from uh, from Stephen's perspective here. Yeah. Well, Jack says that he thinks she's very kind. He, she, you know, she, she's offered to make a house just for him, though he plans to sleep near the battle site. And Jack goes on to say how pleased he is with her war chiefs and their men, that they're professional, they're disciplined, they're not jealous of the Navy. We know Jack's usual military uh, interactions, like the ones he had in New South Wales here. And, you know, perhaps most importantly in Jack's mind, they're open to suggestions. 
So, Mike, it, it seems like this chapter is heading towards everything being okay. But given all of the tension and all of the darkness and all of the drama that's come in the previous chapters, we're just inching towards this moment. And I'm still thinking, wait, 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 hold on. Clarissa and Lieutenant Oaks, something's going to go wrong there. The battle, something's going to go wrong there. Stephen and Jack and their scheming, something could yet go wrong. Uh, the remaining members of the crew, This remember this is a crew that less than a chapter ago were all divided against and amongst each other. We've still got Oaks and West and we've got Martin and we've got the purser and the butcher and all these people who've been falling out so far. We seem to be rolling towards a happy conclusion, but how's it actually going to play out? Jack is telling Stephen that they're going to make a dressing station for him a half hour back from the front. And Stephen asks, why Why as far as that? He's clearly aware that there's a humane aspect to this, that there are going to be wounded, and having a dressing station far back means that it's going to cost suffering and maybe even lives amongst the wounded. Jack says the local custom here is no prisoners, and he doesn't want the battle interrupted on humane grounds, which seems like a bit of a cruel fling at Stephen, really. And Stephen picks up on this and says, have I ever really interrupted a battle? You know, have I ever been a a drag on your military efficiency with my pesky, humane considerations here? And Jack says no, but he believes Stephen has a tender heart and will be better in his proper station, like the cockpit in a ship of the line. And maybe there's an aspect of this in which Jack is also perhaps ascribing a tender heart to himself. Maybe Jack is realizing for himself that he has a tender heart and he's stealing himself by the way he's laying out this battle to go ahead and tolerate the casualties and the bloodletting and the death in order to get done what he knows he needs to get done. He's setting aside his own tender heart, maybe, for the sake of getting the battle. He's setting aside the consequences and he's thinking, I don't want to put Stephen through that. Maybe the half-hour distance is actually a bit of a, uh, a kind gesture towards his friend to keep him away from the immediate bloodshed. And maybe he also wants to keep Stephen away for his own safety as well. Because if the battle is going to be that bloody, if the whole channeling and the defiling and the guns and the uh, and the narrow entry there, if that doesn't work out, there could be widespread bloodshed and Stephen himself could be at risk here. Yeah. I, you know, I couldn't help but feel, you know, we're, we're coming to sort of our end of part one that like you were saying a minute ago, Ian, it looks like it's all going to go well, but this kind of made me pause. I thought on the one hand, very tender moment with Jack and Stephen. On the other hand, could be an ominous sign that says, what if we misjudge this? What if we get, you know, overrun? What if they flank them? What if something, you know, what if something happens? You know, we're keeping Stephen a half hour back. Who would want to bring the wounded a half hour back? This just, you know, worried me a little bit. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to part two of this as we find out. So what happens in this battle? Where do we go with yeah. this? Where do we go with, you know, what happens with Oaks and Clarissa? What happened? You know, we got so much going on here. It's set up so nicely and with this ominous note. Yeah. And even still the possibility for a falling out between Jack and Stephen over, over yes. this humane stuff. Let's remember, O'Brien likes to bring us back full circle. At the beginning of the book, Jack and Stephen were at loggerheads over the departure with Clarissa and Padine from New South Wales, and they were not on the best of terms. And, you know, you think, oh, my gosh, are they about to get set against each other again? Clarissa, Oakes, West, Reed, Pullings, Jack, 
Stephen, Queen Pulani, how are they all going to fare? Might it seems to me that there might only be one thing for it, with a, just a little bit of chapter nine still to go, and we think a great closing interview to wrap up the whole novel here. I can't wait for next week. What do you say to just a tiny bit more, Patrick O'Brien? Oh, I would like that of all things. <laughs> She realizes straight away that if she gets recognized in women, sorry. <laughs> she realizes that if she gets recognized in England.